Oh my goodness, Danny. I re-watched Double Pawns last night. And oh my goodness, what an amazing episode. And honestly, I feel like this is where the series really kind of finds its stride or found its stride. Not to say when I first watched it and now watching it for the second time, haven't enjoyed the first couple episodes, but there's something about the Double Pawns episode that uh, we're, you know, that we're going to unravel right here in this particular podcast that I think really hooks the viewers in terms of at least the excitement of of where the show's going. That is right. Yeah. And now if you're brand new to Coffee House Blunders, Danny said it. Um, we are breaking down every single episode of international Netflix sensation, The Queen's Gambit. Um, Danny and I have been doing this podcast for a long time, and we kicked off season two by demand to break down each and every single episode. I am James Montemagno. I am a program manager over at a small company in Washington called Microsoft. By day, I'm a programmer. By night, I am Batman. There you go. You did it before I could say it. All right. You passed the test. Yes. And also a chess enthusiast. But with me is international chess master and chief chess officer of chess.com, Danny Wrench. Oh, my goodness, Danny. How did I do? Did it, chief, that was, chief that was chess you, know, you crushed it. Sometimes sometimes when I'm describing it to non-chess um, officer or enthusiasts, sometimes I say chief content officer, CCO, because that is actually the standard, which is also true when, when Eric and I first agreed, like, what exactly is my role? Well, I oversee like all of our content and events, which we believe fall under content, and social media, which we believe falls under content. So I kind of oversee all that. But then we realized... Actually, Chief Chess Officer pretty much is the best, uh, you know, made up title you could ever give yourself. So it's stuck. I think it's good. I think it's a, a more descriptive uh, role title. So I think it fits you very well, because what we're doing here is not only producing content, but really we're just talking about chess. Let's yeah. just be honest. Yeah. That's all we're doing. Uh, oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, we are breaking down every single episode. If you haven't listened to the first two episodes, they are there. We do not do any spoilers for future episodes. So if you are watching at home episode by episode and wanting the details, this is the right place for you. Because in fact, I have not watched episode four yet. So no spoilers, Danny. Don't do it. Don't we've, do it. We've officially reached the brink of where after today's podcast, we will be, you will be watching uh, the next episode, which is middle game for the first time. I will be watching it again as we have in terms of our prep for every one of these podcasts we do. And all right, man, but you, you know, I'm here to talk about the chess, but you're really here to drive the ship. You're you're the guy who has, you know, been helping lead the format here and, and kind of taking us through the timeline of each episode. So double pawns, remind everybody, where are we and where are we going in this next beautiful part of this podcast? Yes, we are going to Cincinnati 1963 and really fascinating. This episode, we jumped three years. Um, they've done this to us before where we've jumped times ahead of time mm -hmm. and they jump, um, they jump timelines a lot. And in fact, some of my data that I have here, I cannot validate. Um, we'll get to these. I like to point out really oddities <laughs> to see if they got data correct, but I can't get it right because they don't place um, timelines in this. They jump around very active from 1963 to 1965 and 1966. But yeah, right. we are here uh, in this world. You know, Beth has gotten her first taste at the Kentucky chess um, um, opening over there. Um, at the high school that she played in, she crushed it. Uh, it was amazing. And her mom is all into it now um, and really is all about taking her to as many tournaments as possible. And this is where things really jump off, to be honest with you. I think the opening of this show is very intriguing, though. They blend a lot of Beth's background uh, with her actual mother, not her adopted mother, right, right. Um, into this. This scene is um, tear jerking, it's emotional. 
It opens up with Beth um, as a young child and her mom out on the beach. You can see um, cuts on her mom's wrist, right, of like razor blades. Mm -hmm. Her mom jumps into the water, says goodbye, basically waves to her. And in the background of this, so emotional, you hear the, the, the ticking of the chess clock. You know, and it amplifies as it goes on until our mom comes back out of the water. What a, you know, they end and start these episodes on such a um, dramatic, it really sucks you in. It, it, well, well said. And, you know, obviously we're going to talk a lot about the chess, but of course this whole, this whole show I think has such amazing reviews and the critics are kind of the unsung hero of the popularity of the, the, uh, the Netflix Queens Gambit show, because because it's it was also it's just phenomenal regardless of whether you were a chess fan and this opening I remember was quite literally just like a weird tearjerker because you don't even know is this a, is this a dream yeah. right like her mom is jumping in I mean there's obviously uh you know a lot of whatever the symbolism of her mom jumping into the water and going away from her and she doesn't know whether she's ever going to come back up for air right and this little girl on the edge of her seat and then thrilled that the mom you know, comes up from, I guess it's a lake they're at, right? And, and okay, mom made it, but also the future of already where you know that relationship goes because of the, you know, the beginning of the, uh, the series, you already know that there's a fatal car crash in there in their future. And um, yeah, so that has you on the edge of your seat. And then the ticking clock is like the chess anxiety of it all. I mean, that, that, that noise as a chess player who has been in and, and was playing high, at high level events enough went back when we were still using analog clocks. One, one of the funny notes I have here to bring up in the beginning is obviously the, the ticking of the clock mots is huge and appropriate for the timeline of the Queen's Gambit. They're playing chess mm. in the sixties. And, and that was when there were no digital clocks, let alone online chess. So ticking is exactly the kind of thing you would hear at a chessboard as a chess player. But I also played in events early enough in the nineties when analog clocks which is what those are, uh, what we refer to them as, um, were still used more popularly in tournaments than digital clocks. There was all kinds of tournament clocks that took over from there. The DGT clocks used now, the the Kronos clocks that were around. There's so many digital clocks that I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole of a chess player, but I had to make a note of that because the anxiety a chess player feels, especially when they're under time pressure, when that clock is ticking, is something that is very real. And when you combine that with Beth Harmon's experience as a human being in terms of like whatever you want to call it, the ticking time bomb that was her relationship with her mother, that's the note I made, right? It was a very like kind of moving, moving in and awesome opening scene. Yeah, when you when you hear that <clears throat> ticking, right? I mean, it brings you back to like when you're in like watching Speed or some other right. high movie where there's a bomb, right? And right. yeah, the bomb is all digital. It's not like making a tick, but- it has to make a tip to be dramatic, right? That right. the tick is the dramatic part of it. And, and, and I just love the, the, the drama that they, that brings into it, but it's fascinating enough. Like you said, it's really not there. Although I would say that when you watch chess on, let's say chess.com, the, the digital version, as they, as you're playing, let's say uh, around a bullet, um, that clock, when it starts to get down to the milliseconds, right? When it's really, right as those tiny little bits of the seconds are really going and it's moving really fast, I think that that can be, can be even more anxiety driven when you're, right. when you're down to those final seconds of a match. No, totally. And again, time pressure these days is something you think of online. Uh, those who watch the chess streaming community and, and all the events we do at chess.com, the time is ticking, but it's, it doesn't have that same, you know, noise that goes with it. But, um, 
yeah, I can say the anxiety of hearing those seconds tick off the clock when your flag is is hanging in the air and and you know it's not an exact science when you're reading uh, an analog clock versus a digital clock. You don't know exactly what you have. So I think it anyway. I think it's awesome. Great way to start. And here we go. Beth Harmon. Life continues. Right. Yep. Cincinnati. Cincinnati. Nineteen. Nineteen sixty. Said nobody ever. Here we go to Cincinnati <laughs> in nineteen sixty three. I was just kidding. Go ahead. Um, yeah, this is fascinating. You know, I think the beginning of this episode uh, will contrast heavily towards the end of the episode because in the beginning of the episode, we're still in 1963. Beth had just won uh, the Kentucky um, chess tournament there. She's still seeking acceptance into the chess community. Um, and this is immediately shown off when she goes to put in her, you know, papers and the gentleman says it's uh, 12040. And he goes, that means he goes, that means that you have two hours to play 40 minutes. He has to say, he thinks that he has to explain it to her, right. even though she has literally already won the Kentucky um, tournament right. and she is here at an open in Cincinnati. Which is, I mean, kind of, kind of appropriate. I mean, obviously it's a little awkward because, um, you know, you'd think you don't, you don't always go out of your way to just explain it to, to a new person, whether you know them or not, you know? So, Mm -hmm. but I think for the context of the show and for continuing to like, you know, portray the part of Beth Harmon that like, she's a chess genius, but she's also socially learning the ropes all the time. Right. I mean, that's been a theme throughout the first, Mm -hmm. at least the first few episodes, the first one, two, and three. And I think that that's, I think that's what they're trying to depict is like that. She's, she's kind of not like the others and any group she's in. She's not like the girls she hangs out with. She's not like, uh, you know, the, the very male dominant chess tournament scene. And I think that there is, you know, she does such a good job. We don't, we don't talk much about Anya Taylor joy in terms of the actress. I feel like her face says a lot of things in a lot of scenes and a lot of critics have said that how amazing that is. So I think sometimes that's actually a credit to like her acting as a character she really does a good job of explaining with her face whether she understands something or not. Is that a fair way to say it? Right. And I think there's like a feeling that people are like, oh, wait, she doesn't understand what 120 and 40 means, which it actually means you have to make 40 moves in the first 120 minutes. So 40 moves in two hours, as you were about to explain. Maybe you didn't take it that way. What, what did you what did you take out of that scene? No, I think out of that scene, how I took it was um, was validated by the next scene, to be honest with you, because the next scene after after that gentleman explains it to her, you know, I think I think you are right. Her face, her emotions throughout everything, how she sits down at a chessboard, how she puts her you can tell when she's deep thinking, when her thought is her emotions read well on her face. But I think once she re-meets Benny, right, right. Um, Benny says some interesting things, but I'll, I'll talk about the revalidation first because eventually, then soon after Benny, he's talking about the Karo Khan right, throwback. Right. Yeah, yeah, but classic. right after that, he meets, um, you know, her again, and he goes, he calls her little girl. He right. tells her that um, why he isn't playing at this open. He says playing too many opens can only hurt me. Right? He's sort of uh, in a way, especially with little girl talking down to her, not showing right. her the respect For in sure. this chess world. But he's also you know, it's that, um, you know, that, that side, um, he's throwing shade. That's what he's right. doing. He's throwing 1963 shade right. by saying like, I don't I'm too good for this open. In fact, I don't play You're going to go play all these opens to have fun, but me, Benny, <laughs> I don't think so. Well, you know what I mean? One of the chess, 
things I, I noted about that, the context of that, obviously we do have to talk about the Carol Khan being all, all pawns and no hope because it's one of the greatest lines and best memes that has come out of the show in the chess community. But um, the that is actually, um, the thing that's great about that is it's both things in one. It's what you said. It's, it's, it's throwing shade. It is definitely at least slightly misogynistic, if not just totally overtly, right? A little girl, a fish out of water in a male dominant community. He's like, Who's you know he he's 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 throwing shade. It's misogynistic. It's dismissive, um, and then but they also consistently do a good job of depicting what a strong chess player would be like. And a very very for example, I can tell you there was a period in my chess career where my coaches told me to stop playing in so many rapid opens mm-hmm. because there's a process like of, of for a chess player where where you're growing Mots and really everything is just about practice, 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 right? The more chess games you play, the better. You're literally in the 10,000 hour stage of your chess career and pattern recognition can only really, you know, you only recognize more patterns by seeing more patterns. Obviously I'm oversimplifying the process and, you know, you're analyzing your games, all this stuff, but that's really the key is like your coaches are like, I don't care what you're playing in. You're playing in the open on Friday. Now you're going to play the Saturday rapid. Then you're going to go play the Sunday, you know, 60 minute. Then you're going to play on two. Like this is the plan for a chess coach, right? And then you mm-hmm. get to a certain point where they're like, all right, you have developed habits of playing too quickly and undisciplined, and you need to stop playing so many opens. You're going to focus on more serious, longer time control sort of closed events that are, you know, basically tougher competition, let's say. Mm-hmm. And so it's all those things wrapped into it, and and it, it definitely hits home. But it also is suggestive to Beth as she learns more of the community, that Benny actually is like a boss of the chess community, right? Because that is something that the stronger chess players start to do as they get better. They play in less opens. They play in more closed invitational events. So what I'm saying is like, they nailed it. What am I, what am I trying to say? What does that lady say on the show? Nailed it. Nailed it. They nailed literally it. nailed the the like the demeaning way a stronger chess player would talk to a weaker chess player, and it wasn't inaccurate, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like for example, uh, if someone who didn't know a chess community could do the same scene and say like, oh, invitationals are for weak players. I play in more opens. And then I would be the chess player on a podcast like this, podcast like this saying, actually, that's really inaccurate. That's not how the chess community works. Right. So I was just saying like, they really nailed that whole, like the whole feeling and vibe you get from that scene and the relationship between her and Benny Watts that kind of starts to formulate right then. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good, uh, and you know, kind of good perspective on it because yeah, how I would interpret it is a little bit, a little bit different, but it's kind of like, Hey, this is actually, as you get in and as you grow your career path, like you're going to actually be playing in a lot less openings. Like I almost see that for you, like in some way, maybe hopefully you're saying that, but yes, let's get back to the Karo Khan defense. Um, you know, he says Rook to seventh rank Karo Khan defense, all pawns and no hopes they're discussing this there. I, we talked about the Karo Khan defense. I don't really know what Rook to seventh rank means. And, on this podcast, we like to break down chess terminology because I know sometimes they talk about stuff. I don't know what that means. <laughs> right. um, well, moving your rook to the seventh rank is often uh, suggestive or indicating that someone's about to basically just dominate, um, usually an end game, because um, on, on a chessboard, you have 64 squares and obviously of, of op, uh, rotating and opposite colors. But as the position opens up, especially in a, in a closed game, you start to get only a couple open files, an open file here and an open file there. And I often say as a chess coach that open files are like commodities in that what governs their value is supply and demand. So if you're in a closed position and there's only one open file, 
it's super important who gets control over that with their rooks, right? Whereas mm-hmm. if you're in a wide open position, you know, there's a lot, there's a large supply. The value isn't that high. So rooks on the seventh rank is usually the first person who gets the rook to the seventh rank is about to clean up. That's kind of uh. what they're saying. They're about to dominate the game because you controlled the open file. You controlled the avenue, the highway, if you will. And without getting, you know, make this a whole, you know, chess supply and demand philosophy lesson, but it is something I've actually, I've actually lectured on understanding the supply and the demand of, of a chessboard and being able to start to target, um, what's more valuable because there's less of it available to both sides. So anyway, the rook on the seventh rank is exactly implying the first person who gets their rook to the seventh rank is about to roll through this end game, going to crush. And he was kind of, uh, and actually, again, appropriately sort of criticizing the Karakhan for being a slow, very close kind of passive opening and um, sort of implying that, you know, the cleanup is about to come. Gotcha. So when, it, when they say, when he says, you know, all pawns and no hope, is that because the, the Karakhan defense is truly all pawns and, and no hope? Okay, so this is great. So we're actually, I have a um, a particular author, I won't say his name. He's very well known in the chess community. He's working on a series on the Karakhan for chess.com right now, a lesson series. And I initially joked when we hired him for him, I said, yeah, you can call it all pawns and no hope. Obviously, we've all seen the Queen's Gambit. And even if you haven't, in the chess world, that was a very funny meme that came from Benny Watts. It's obviously an exaggeration. He's doing a series on, you know, uh, endorsing how to play the Karakhan well. But it is exactly how, like, a player like Benny Watts, especially you learn about him, would criticize it. It's, what is the Karakhan? It's a, it's a, um, it's a slow opening that's all about strategic pawn structure management. Hmm. So the reference of it's all pawns, no hope is not totally inaccurate and that it's kind of a closed passive opening. Of course, it's not. No, not no hope. The Karakhan has been played by many, many great chess players um, in the history of the world. I'll say that. Um, Mikhail Botvinnik was a was a very uh, strong proponent of it um, in his world championship matches. I mentioned him because he is the the father of the Soviet Union in terms of chess. Um, so it's not totally inaccurate, but it is, again, awesome shade by Benny Watts, and it has become a very hilarious sort of meme of the chess community. Yeah, and I think that we'll see some of this... Uh some of this come back up into play. It's already been in play a little bit, but I think it's fascinating. They said, you know, I would take the knight and double his pawns. And, and this is a direct reference to a 1935 match, which they reference in the show. Yep. Yeah. And again, that just shows, um, we've made a, we made that timeline of it. Um, that you and I have referenced a few times the the spreadsheet that shows the timeline of chess use in, in the series. And again, they're following so greatly to, the evolution of chess, if you will. Initially, she's playing combinations by, you know, Ready over Tartakower and, you know, from Hastings in 1910 and, and the Greco games. And then it's now it's a, we're in like this positional era and they're quoting games from 1935. So again, just awesome stuff. And I think here too, even though Benny does kind of talk down to her in, in this little girl I was talking about this, this here, you know, he, she reintroduces herself and, and she even acknowledges like they had met, but they didn't really interact. Right. And, and, and Benny's like, you know, sorry, you know, he wasn't rude about it. And right, right. to be honest, Benny, at this point, we learn he's an international master, which we're right. going to talk, we're going to talk this podcast about ranks and stuff. Not yet. Oh, we're yeah. not there yet. Once we sit down at the dinner table with, um, uh, Mike and Matt, we will go ahead and, mm-hmm. and talk about this, which is coming up soon. But, um, you know, I thought that was pretty fascinating that, you know, he, he shrugs, he kind of shrugs her off a little bit, but he's still acknowledges like, Oh, okay. Like we must have, right. He's like that. Yeah, yeah. And, 
as someone, you traveling all over, I travel tons, we meet tons of people. That is, I want to say like, that's not shade, right? right? It's you, you in the world, if you're a traveler, if you're someone that is presenting a lot or playing chess a lot, you're going to meet tons of people all the time and you're not going to remember everyone. And their interaction was very small in the previous episode. Right. So I just well, I and, thought it was fascinating. And, and plus, and plus like they've already sort of foreshadowed, remember in episode two exchanges, when she looks at one of the chess review magazines, Benny Watts is on the front of it, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. So they've already sort of planted the seed that Benny Watts, whoever he is, is sort of a somebody in the chess world. We don't even know the full extent, but we know, right? Yep. And, and so I think it's no, no, understandable, right? And it's not total shade. It's him kind of saying, I don't remember you, but not necessarily in a jerky way, right? I mean, yeah. he travels a ton as a professional player, and most likely when he's in the chess world at a tournament, he's probably meeting a lot of people. Yeah, I agree. Now, th- now this entire episode moves really, really fast through the years and through the chess, even from this first match, which maybe is one of my favorite five seconds of the first three episodes where she gets assigned, I think it's like table 15 or something like that. Uh-huh. And, and he, she goes over to the guy to shake hands and she goes, I'm Beth Harmon. And he goes, <laughs> you know what I mean? He's just like, ah, oh. and then it's over. And she's the first to turn in the card. Right. Right. And so just the guys, basically the life just gets sucked out of him. Right. right. Because at least there is some beginning you know, points in which oh, yeah. people know who she is. Yep. No, we're starting to see that, right? I mean, she won the Kentucky tournament um, <clears throat> and uh, her name is developing and, you know, that happens. Sometimes you play someone and you just go, you know, I'd like to think at one point I was like the feared young, talented up and comer um, and people didn't want to play. And then at a certain point it switched roles and I was like, oh, like, you know, the person who they wanted to get free rating points from. <laughs> but <laughs> I feel like I've been on both sides of that. So that was, that was, I, I really, I thought that was well done. I thought that was good. And they move right on to the, the next day match at table five. Now, no, do, as you progress through the game, m- moving up tables, like then she was at table five and they kind of made it a point to have the table five little placard there. Yep. Like in a game that's a, over the board like this in this tournament, at least in the era, does moving up to a higher board number like percent accurate? Yeah. Okay. Really well done. And sorry, not even to cut off your thought, but you're a hundred percent. Good question. And they're nailing it still. They're nailing it. Good. Nailed it. Nice. Hashtag nailed, nailed it. it. Yeah. And I love this because this was the first one that, um, her mom watches. Yeah. The yeah. first time she really, and, and there's a scene there too, or I took it as like the mom kind of like fully appreciating who her daughter was. Right. It was like, Oh yeah. Like, Wait a second. Wait, there's like a lot of people in here, like, and and she's like impressive and watching how she carries herself as a as a woman in a in a room full of men, right? And I think the mother, again, they have that relationship, you know, they're they're in this together now, uh, which we kind of, you know, we talk too fast, and usually we talk about the uh, the name of the episode and what it means, and I actually thought it was in some ways a direct reference to not just the chess, but maybe, um, the two women, uh, together, um, and, and feeling like they're, they're kind of learning the chess world. And, um, and that was a really cool scene for the mom to kind of appreciate what, uh, what the environment was for Beth and, and, and how, how, at what a high level she was competing. And she even says, she goes, this is much more exciting than I thought, right? She's, she literally is that all like, you know, I've had these, uh, you know, the experiences with my parents or other family members where they're like, oh, wow, like what you do is actually 
not what I thought it was, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I bet. Yes. I bet so many <laughs> of those. Yep. That is what happens. And yep. Mike and Matt are there. Everyone loves the Mike and Matt yeah, um, combo. They've become two of my favorite characters throughout the whole thing. Uh, anyway, go ahead. So good. And and they go have they have a meal together, um, Beth, our mom, and, and Mike and Matt. And, and this is where we find out that, you know, Benny is an international um, master. It says it has an international title. The mom's interested in the travel and the money. Uh-huh. I'm more interested here because we quickly learn that she's about to go play a master, that she beats a grandmaster later. I get questions all the time when I introduce you as an international master. Right. Um, what does that mean? Um, you have, you were a national master. There's Matt. I think I know the rankings, but can you at this point break it down for us, Danny? Yeah, so we'll, well, I was, I was almost going to ask you to break it down because I, the way you prefaced it was really good, but maybe it's better if, if I, if I just do it, it's so a, a grandmaster is the highest title and the long form title is international grandmaster, but it's sort of implied because the the grandmaster title is, um, is a global title, I guess. So it's just not something that needs to be said. And although it's kind Mm -hmm. of a funny, I will say this without trying to throw shade at any particular chess people who've ever introduced themselves as international grandmaster. But I will say there was sort of a period there where authors were going out of their way to put IGM on a book instead of just GM international Mm -hmm. grandmaster sounded more prestigious, but it was kind of like something that became a little bit of like a, like he needs to pronounce himself international grandmaster instead of just saying grandmaster anyway, never mind. But grandmaster is the highest title. And yes, the official long form title is international grandmaster. The second highest title is international master, which is That's my you. title. That's me. I'm so I'm Benny wow. Watts in this show. In a wow, way, you, I mean, wow. if you really think about it, I kind of look like Benny Watts. I definitely used to wear a hat and have a knife like Benny Watts. I can confirm that. <laughs> um, those are all just jokes. Um, but Benny Watts is an international master, which is. And so the reason you stop there with both of those titles and why Benny Watts was such a big deal to Mike and Matt is because I am and GM, the titles international master and grandmaster can only be achieved through like international level play, which implies world travel. It implies playing in events that were, if not invitational events, they were certainly elite events in regards to the, you know, the amount of people that were there from all over the world. So I can tell you, And then the way you get those titles, the thing that makes them different than every other title is they're not just based on rating, where if you Google, like, what's a grandmaster now, uh, the first thing you'll say is, like, it's roughly like a 2,500 feet A-rated person, and the grandmaster is the highest title in chess. But those two things are true, but you also have to earn what's called a performance norm. Mm. And a norm can only be achieved in, a, in an event that was, like I said, has enough people from multiple federations and enough players of, of a certain rating and enough title players. Mm. So, and, and in order to get those norms, you have to perform at like plus two or plus three. So in like a nine round event, you would have to get like a six, six points out of nine in order to get a norm. And then you have to do that multiple times and in addition addition to doing that multiple times you also have to maintain the rating of 2500 respectively for grandmaster or 2400 for for uh for international master so the point is it's not easy to get and because they're not easy to get they're the only titles you can't ever lose and um oh Oh, yeah once you once you're an international master grandmaster you can never not become never lose it you can never lose it it takes it's a it's a complicated process to get 
it, it takes multiple forms of criteria. Then you have to apply and prove that you did it. You have to have had like a record of these tournaments and that they were legit. They were FIDE governed in terms of the rules. And, and you had to maintain the rating to do it. And so once you've done that, you get granted the title. I literally have the, the FIDE certificate in front of me right now. I'm looking at it. Daniel Wrench, international master. I was awarded the title in 2009. Um, and so other titles like FIDE master, um, which is basically just the rating of 2300 FIDE. Then there's a national master, as you, as you quoted, which is the rating of 2200 uh, FIDE and, and, and USCF. So like the first person that she, you know, beats that was made to be this was Harry Beltic, right? And he, they said he was almost a national master. So he was about 21, I think like 50 or something, right? When we did that episode. And so he hadn't quite reached 2200 yet, which is where he would get the NM national master title. Hmm. But again, national master title, FIDE master titles, those titles are recognizing the rating. They are not permanent. You can cross 2200 and be considered a master. But if you go back below 2200, you're no longer considered a master level chess player. Oh. And I am and GM, once you have those titles, that's why they're the only true like professional titles. Like you have to basically at one point have been investing like a professional to get those titles. And when you get it, I could, I could literally tomorrow go back to playing like a 1900 and just like, you know, just like, God forbid, have like a brain aneurysm, right? I could no longer be able to play the level of chess I play now, but I would still always be an international master. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. So that, that that's a good breakdown. And I, I believe we did cover this in a very, very early episode in, of Coffee House Blunders, but it's a good reminder of the rank here and how important that is, like you said, in this, in this tournament, because um, she's about to play a master, um, Rudolph, in this over here. And... Um, and that's kind of good to know that this is a rank that while he, that Rudolph was a master currently, he may have not been right after he gets destroyed, um, <laughs> in this, yep. but, but that's good to know. And now one thing here I did, I'd have note before we get to Rudolph V Harmon is she's talking about, you know, who, um, she, you know, fears, a little. I forget what the conversation was, but it was something about Russia and it was something I have written down here pre forties. They said U.S. was better than Russia. I think it was Benny or it was, it was Mike or, or Matt. Or I think it might have been Mike or Matt that said something about 20 years ago or whatever, you know, when when we were on top or something like that. Like, was, was there a pre-1950s, 1940s era where Russia wasn't on the top? Yeah. Is that what they're implying here? Not, not really. That was one of the – there's one other um, note I made – and I'll save it for when you bring it up when we talk about her beating a grandmaster later on that I made that, you know, that I will call out as being kind of, uh, I think they do this for the drama of the show and the implication that there's a battle between like the West and the East, which does again, play, uh, play directly into the comparison or let's say the tribute that a lot of people have said, Beth Harmon's char character kind of being based on the timeline of Bobby Fisher, right. Um, that, you know, the Bobby Fisher, match versus Boris Fosky in 1972 and everything that led into it was, was dominated by the storyline of, you know, the U S versus the Soviet union, right? Literally the cold war, uh, was, was, uh, what was going on. And so they sort of imply that I will say this, like I thought about it too. There were, you know, um, top world players in the U S if you want to talk about way back in the day, unofficially Paul Morphy at some point in the uh, uh, late 1800s was considered the best player in the world. 
even though they didn't have a world championship cycle then. Um, there was also, uh, you know, Frank Marshall was a uh, one of the top elite players in the world. Um, but but even during those periods, I would I would say that it was never really something that could have been positioned as U.S. at one point was the perennial power of chess. Um, I would never I would never really agree that that is a, an accurate depiction of the 20s, 30s, 40s. I mean, you know, you have Wilhelm Steinitz was the first world champion. Then you have Emmanuel Lasker. Those are both Europeans. Then you have uh, you have Jose Raul Capablanca. He was Cuban. You have Alexander L. Johan. So like the timeline that this travels, like there was never a U.S. dominance. And mm. so that that was kind of an inaccurate, but I, you know, albeit dramatic sort of uh, plug, you know, so gotcha. It, okay. I'm, I'm saying, I'm saying no. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. That's <laughs> what I was curious about. Cause I was like, yeah, it seems a lot. All right. Let's get to Rudolph V Harmon. Rudolph is a master. Now, when we come into this match, um, Harmon is already winning. I mean, statistically here, we have it in the chess analysis board in our show notes. You can click on that. Um, already though. Yeah. You will see. I mean, the game's kind of over at this point. Um, right. And, I don't know what led, we don't know what led up to these events necessarily. Um, but, uh, she, you know, ends the game eloquently at, at this point. I don't know. How would you describe where we're introduced into this match? You're talking about the, the, the position of the analysis board. Um, the one yeah, that we prepared. Let's start yeah. the, let's start where, where, where we come in, which is, um, on the E line. I'm going to call it the E line. Is that accurate? E, e file, but yes, go ahead. We're on the E file and going from E3 is white's king, a bishop, and then a knight with a rook on the F file. It's funny. I'm highlighting this as we go as if it's being screen recorded for a show because it's just a habit to, for me. Go, even though I know <laughs> yep. no one's going to see this, I'm doing it. Um, and 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 over on, over on Beth, who's playing black, she also has a bishop, a knight, and a rook. So if you were to come in, it actually kind of looks like you know, white has one more pawn, right? Um, kind of odd that there's a stack on the E file going on. Um, it does look a little bit more like, uh, Beth is in attack mode with her knight in yeah. this. And that's sort of what we see. Beth, Beth comes into play and, um, her Bishop is backing her knight at this point. Um, but she lets that go and moves her knight who is, um, on the F four, um, on right. the, on the F4 square, right next to the the king, takes the bishop on the E2, and and then there's and then, a take. And, yeah, ends the and game. Mate. Very, yep, the king has to take back, and then That's and it. then we have checkmate. So, first of all, again, great job, Mots, the non chess player or not non chess professional. The two of us again did a great job preparing this. Um, and so what I would have described this as is it had clearly been a good game, mm. but black was about to win. Got it. Right. And okay. I think that's what they're trying to say. Like, okay, this was a good game. This was a tough opponent. But once again, Beth Harmon, our superstar chess prodigy um, is about to win. And what this is called when uh, the knight moves from the F4 square to sort of unleash the bishop on H6 and attack the king on E3. I'm going to say that we're assuming everyone listening to the podcast has clicked the link, the analysis link, and, and you've got the position in front of you so you can follow it and it makes sense. The move knight takes e2 wins a bishop for black, but it's more more importantly a discovery. Discovery is when you move a piece, unleashing a piece behind it. So it's a discovered check of the bishop on h6 to attack the king on e3. Yep. And 
the Viking has no real choice but to capture back, um, at least from a practical point of view. In theory, capturing back leads to checkmate in one move, and the king could move to another square like f2. But then Beth Harmon would have just won a bishop for free. She would move the knight to safety, and the game is for all intents and purposes over. So the forcing line is to take the bishop back, which is what Rudolph does, and then the move rook to d2 check is mate because the pawn on g4 guards the f3 square, which would be an escape square, and the, the white king is otherwise trapped by, by his own knight and rooks on e1 and f1, and the dark square bishop both guards e3 and protects the rook on d2. So uh, what I think what they're trying to imply, and again, we keep talking about this, and I've loved so much when the story on the board kind of matches the moment, just that this was a good game. She's playing tougher opponents, but she's still a beast, right? And and she again beats another another master, and uh, and it was you know very clean finish. And is is that the right move by Rudolph? There is that what you're confirming? Like this would be pretty yeah. accurate. Well, the one thing that I'll say for oh, it's funny you asked that way. Well, one of the things that isn't totally realistic. In, in several cases, is people playing it out till checkmate, mm. right? And and again, but it's funny you say that because we've talked a lot about this as someone who kind of, you know, my job is to really oversee the chess on chess.com, but really a lot of that is like making chess more understandable, relatable, entertaining, right? And one of the problems I think a lot of people have with the chess world is when they're following a top game and they don't understand why someone resigned. Um, yeah instead of playing it out. And this is sort of a disconnect that is both elusive and kind of makes these intellectual giants of the chess world sort of like, oh, wow, they're, they're so smart. But I think ultimately it actually maybe isn't the best thing for the game. And I've heard people even support tournaments that require you to play it out till checkmate so that anyone watching would always see the final conclusion. Hmm. Um, regardless of getting into that philosophical debate and the pros and cons, I think that the movie does a good job of playing the games out till checkmate. So you see the finish, um, even if it's not a hundred percent realistic that a chess master, because here's sometimes how they do it because they're doing that Mots, The problem is they also sometimes make it like Rudolph doesn't know that checkmate is coming on the next move. And sure. that, and that part of it is unrealistic, right? Yeah. A player of that level knows exactly what's happening. And because of that, they often won't play it out till checkmate. Um, so, but again, I don't think this is a major sticking point in terms of the 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 accurate depiction of the experience and her chess and and the timeline of it all. And I also can't totally speak because I you know I wasn't playing chess in the '60s. Maybe more chess masters did play out till checkmate. I don't think so because a culture that has so been so established for so long and you know had so much tradition when I started becoming an active player. I think that this has been the case for chess for a long time. So other than the guy not knowing checkmate's coming, the chess itself is realistic. Got it. Got it. That sounds good. I, I would be fascinated in an, in another long form to take this game and look at alternative endings. I think that might be a fascinating live stream that we could do is let's get the board into the state and let's play out something different, right? What if he did move um, King to F2? How would that have ended, right? How would that mate have happened at the end of the day? Um, when the analysis board, you know, doesn't move all the way black, you know, it's not mate yet. Um, I'd be fascinated in that, but let's move on, Danny. We can only stay in 
Cincinnati for so long because <laughs> we have a plane to catch <laughs> many a planes apparently. So now they are sort of flying all over. This is a fun scene where her mom keeps calling into schools, um, into her school, telling her that she's sick. This is the worst thing I've ever seen. Um, but you know, Beth keeps being featured in these different magazines of her winnings. And, and, and this is where time actually jumps around. I'll get to this in general, but the first thing that we hear her mom read off is is stuff about about beth and then again that beth beats a grandmaster in pittsburgh that's a big jump to go from i beat rudolph a master we know it's about to happen with benny because it's our second time watching it but then she beats a grandmaster in pittsburgh now we don't know who this grandmaster is maybe this grandmaster has fallen to a 1900 like you said (laughs) but How is that? I don't you know. Is that you already nailed possible? it? And I and I guess I foreshadowed it earlier as one of the ver- the other few things I would bring up. Right, like that was like kind of unnecessary. Now, not improbable, by the way. Like not 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 impossible, and not even necessarily improbable. There are like cases of talented juniors who are rising so fast that an eighteen nineteen hundred player could beat a grandmaster like in a one off game. But but it's highly unlikely, super rare, and it's kind of presented in a weird way where they're like both proud of Beth, like being at the 1800 level. And then also like, and yeah, she beat a grandmaster in Pittsburgh. I, I don't, I mean, I don't know. Maybe the more I, the more I talk about it, the second time I saw it, I was less critical than the first time to be mm. honest, because I was like, well, you know, it, it can't happen. Right. A guy like Hikaru Nakamura, when he was coming up, right. He would, you know, he would have that kind of talent, right? And still be making a lot of other mistakes and and lose to other players, even of the master level. But, you know, maybe he could in a one-off game beat a grandmaster. So let's say that it's actually not not un, unreasonable to believe that that could be the case. And yeah, I think that if it did happen, it probably would be something they wrote about in a magazine as far as recognizing a talented person. So, so but, but the, what I wanted to say is the issue I have with it is they definitely apply. I mean, we never, ever see a game where Beth Harmon loses, right? Like, I mean, I know in later episodes we will, but I'm not spoiling it, right? Um, so that's the kind of thing. It's like chess is such a, a journey and a struggle that you're going to be losing to, at that level, you're going to be losing to a lot of master level players for a while. And you're not just going to like be beating them and grandmasters at 1800 level all the time. It's just not a thing. So. Yeah, the, it sort of gives it a false sense of reality that we believe right. that Beth is invincible at this part, in this point. You know what I mean? Because we haven't seen that at all. And that's a fascinating perspective on it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I want to get to the next part, which is they're flying and her mom brings up uh, a big tournament in Houston that they could do over Christmas. And I love this part because she's like, you know, we can go to the beauty spa, right, do right. girly things. And Beth goes, Yes, mother. Because <laughs> I don't even care about doing those things. Yes. But yes, mother. Yeah. Give me chess. All right, here we go. Now, then we see them on a plane heading to Houston. It is a national plane. Now, here's where our timelines are fuzzy because we are meant to believe that in between the 1963 match in Cincinnati and the 1966 um, match in Las Vegas that we're still in the t- same exact time era. We're not positive here. We're not sure how much time has gone. Is the Houston match still in 1963? I say nay. I say it is not. Um, only because the plane that they are flying in 
in this national plane is a Boeing 727-100. Oh, um, gosh. Here comes some some mods <laughs> no, knowledge nuggets of how closely you followed this. <laughs> now, I this, love it. this national plane um, flew from... Um, you know, a national flew to Houston from 1956 to 1980. So that's accurate. Now, this Boeing 727-100 was not introduced until 1964. So it would oh, be impossible. Wow. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so you said I was going to be impressed with some of the uh, the length of which you went to for episode three, and you are not disappointing, sir. So this plane, so this time era, it would be impossible for them to be in 1963. So we have progressed a year, and I am going to say I am okay with them magically going um, into. 1964 and going, that means they're about to go into 1965, um, which is when she meets the girls and does the things, um, which makes sense. This, this timeline does match up and we'll talk about it a little bit more, but remember now we are in the, the winter of, of 1964. And that's the only way possible that this can happen. However, Danny, I don't know how they took a national flight from Lexington, Kentucky to Houston. Because there is no national flights from Kentucky or any surrounding states. Ever. <sighs> okay, a lot so, to unpack there. A lot so, to unpack. Go ahead. <laughs> so the only way that they could do this possibly is that this is their second flight. Okay, this is the only way. that they, they would have had to do a stopover somewhere. It's impossible for them to get to Kentucky to Houston. So I'm going to say maybe... I'd have to look at, I didn't look at all the details here. I'd have to say maybe they either went down to Florida, which was the major, major hub of national in this time era. Um, maybe Jacksonville, hard to say, Tampa, maybe Louisiana, maybe to Louisiana down. There is a Louisiana Houston route. I'm pretty sure. So that could be possible, Danny, but it, we don't get to see it, but I do want to point out that as somebody who flies a lot, it has me thinking. It has me thinking. Well, this is the this is where you're much more the expert qualified to comment than myself as the the chess master. I'll just say it's funny you broke that thing down super uh, specifically because I was going to argue like to me the way they set up the episode it feels like the Houston event and like the yes mother thing is immediately following Cincinnati, right? I mean, it kind yeah. of feels like that, right? Mm -hmm. So. I think overall, obviously, we're we're kind of having fun here. It's our you know it's our podcast. We're allowed to do what we want, right? But I mean, overall, I think we know what they're what they're setting the tone for is very clear. These two ladies are doing a lot of travel. Beth Harmon is making a name for herself, getting mentioned in magazines, beating grandmasters in Pittsburgh, and she's on her way toward becoming a dominant kind of not not maybe a dominant fortune, but an up and comer here on not just like the local Kentucky scene, but the national scene. So I'm just going to say all of that is obviously it makes sense. And that's where they, they kind of get away with movie magic until they run into a guy like uh, James Montemagno, who kind of reviews and understands. So if what you're saying about the 727 not being available until 1964, yeah. then I literally... I have to concede, there's no way that the Houston event was right after the Cincinnati event. Yeah, so, so you're so right. Here's yeah. how they fix their timeline. Now we're gonna we're gonna I'm gonna jump to the to the end, and then we're gonna come back to where we're currently at. So remember, we're on a plane to Houston currently. Um, how this works is that in in the next scene, 
um, in the future, she, she is invited with the girls, um, to come and hang out uh, with them. And she tells them that she hopes to be going to Las Vegas when they're not impressed with Houston, um, in the next few months. Now we know that the Las Vegas open happens in April, specifically in 1966. And, we know that that conversation that she had with the girls took place in 1965 before April because she tells Towns that she was going, she, she was all set to go in 1965, but her mother got sick and decided that's, to stay behind. That's right. So that is how they somehow magically bridge the missing year together into this. Um, and, and that's why I think they're on a national plane in 1964 on their way to Houston. Makes sense. And they're doing a great job at this point, kind of uh, planting the seeds of what's to come in terms of things that could affect Beth's chess tournaments and her mom being sick, which again, I won't say anything else about that because you'll be mad at me. We've got a lot of episodes to get to, but okay, you're right. They fixed the timeline. I love it. You know, talking about the the night with the girls, that's an yes. awkward, right? Social event. They also do some other things there, right? They uh, The Life they Magazine. That's probably my most awkward moment of this episode. Okay. Okay, go um, for it. The you know the, there's a series once she gets back, which is um, she has this interview with the Time Magazine, and then she's invited by the girls. So now we're we're really into acceptance mode, right? The right. girls are accepting her. She I love the scene where um, she's signing um, chess review magazines with articles on her on it, and the right. one guy with the braces goes, "We started a chess club." Like so, right. there's right. an awe, right? How awkward is this Life Magazine shoot um, in yeah, general? But- They're making her hold all this stuff, and then. Also, at the same time, she lies to the newspaper. She says that she was in the basement with Mr. Scheibel learning chess at age eight, which is a falsity, by the way, because later in the episode, she says that she was nine years old when she started learning chess, and we know she was nine years old. And that's just really odd to me. Yeah, why would she lie? <laughs> I don't I think know. <laughs> that, I think that either, either you caught them making a mistake, a cinematic mistake, or it was just that she wanted to be considered like she had learned chess younger, you know, she's clearly a damaged, you know, we're kind of like skipping over some of the stuff that I think is the, uh, the whole series takes its, I don't want to say darker turns, but as you learn more about, you know, she's been through this, like these traumas, you said how the episodes, this particular one started with, you know, we're back to realizing just how, just how um, horrific her relation with her mother was right. And everything she went through. And then you've got this like life magazine, which is like kind of a, a really kind of weird and kind of leaves you feeling kind of icky interview. But obviously the woman interviewing her is sort of implying like, Hey, you know, there's probably something wrong with you, right? (laughs) Because you're really good at chess. That's basically what (laughs) she leaves her with. And, and that chess is more of an obsession than it is like a healthy hobby. Yeah. And that, that, that implication is, you know, maybe directly even said, right. And then, um, and then what I was getting to with the night with the girls is like, you've got this, like, this moment where she kind of walks into the study and kind of sees the alcohol. Right. Oh uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the reason I'm getting into all that is because we already know we've got the, the, you know, what happened in, in the first episode and, you know, the, the little green pills um, that she's reintroduced to when she sees that her mother has the sort of, you know, the, uh, what does the mom call it? Uh, the tranquil, um, tranquility, tranquility medicine. Right. But then you also start to see that as these other challenges are getting super intense, for, for Beth to deal with most of them social, like on the chessboard, mm-hmm. on the chessboard, she seems to be at home. Yeah. Right. But all the other challenges of her life to, to fit in or, or at least know how not to challenge the social girl group, this interview where she's a star, like she clearly is like looking for some ways to deal with 
the pressures that she doesn't really know how to handle, you know? And that was something that I took out of this episode too, that they sort of foreshadowed really well. And, and yeah, I don't even know what I'll say. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I think I have down here acceptance, fame. She already has it on the board now in real life. Question I have to ask you is, um, 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 do you enjoy playing bridge, Danny? (laughs) Uh, first of all, uh, actually, no, sorry. I was going to say yes, but no, I don't, I don't enjoy playing bridge at all. I, I heard that chess players enjoy bridge. Uh, some do. Um, a lot of chess players, you know, these days play poker too. Um, I think chess players like poker because it's a little more, uh, they like the elements of the unknown in poker that you don't have in complete information games like chess. Um, but no, you know, bridge is maybe, maybe in that time period was a more appropriate kind of comparison. Um, I don't know that I know of a lot of modern day chess players that are super into bridge, but I'm going to, I'm going to take this one with a grain of salt and say, yeah, you know, it's okay to be into bridge if you're a chess player. Yeah. Why not? You do you. That's what I like to say. Um, I, I think, I think I have figured out just via my notes here and my, my, um, conversation with you, why she said, um, that she was eight years old. We're going to get to it in a few pages in my notes, but before we, before we leave the girl's house, which was again, one of my favorite scenes where the girls are terrible. I mean, children, terrible people in general, and they invite her over kind of despite her anyways. They're not impressed by her at all. Beth isn't impressed by them, but I will make a quick point here. The TV that is shown on here is a uh, Stern Radio Stratford's Patriot 16 GW 437 ah, television. My old TV. My old TV. Yes. Um, the Patriot 16 GW 437. It's a classic. It's a German set. I don't know if they're making any references here to German chess players at the time. However, this was a German set. Accurate. I just want to make accurate. That was um, manufactured in 1961. So it was accurate for the time era and they have it spot on. There's a link in the show notes to Radio I Museum where I found this information. Very fascinating. So. Well, I love it because, again, all these, uh, the Mott's angles where you're really, you know, trying to stay focused on the timeline where they got the details right. You know, where we we give credit to things like that to the point where you literally are listing the model number of a German Patriot television set, um, which is why we also have to point out when they mess up things like in the last podcast episode where they didn't have the date listed with the full month and year on Chess mm-hmm. Review Magazine. Right. So yep, that's correct. Um, yeah. Good, good stuff. I love it. Now here we then head to Las Vegas, 1966, which then has yeah. you thinking, has it been three years? And that's what yeah. I literally stopped or wound a bunch. And I had to, this arc of, of time was very confusing and they are going to play the U S open. Now, fascinatingly enough, the 1966 U S open was played at the Stardust hotel. Um, and it was won by Benko scoring okay. seven, um, um, seven wins, I guess seven scoring seven wins first. That's what I wrote down here. I, that first of all, good chat. I did not go to those links, but Benko is a direct, uh, well, Benko is a multiple time U S champion and a legend of the global and United States chess community. And, uh, exactly who would be winning that event in 66. So obviously you already confirmed that that's facts, but I'm just confirming even further because we keep talking about, um, how much of it is fact or fiction. In fact, we had a, God, I could pull up Slack. We had a great tweet yesterday from um, a rather famous person on Twitter. I have to find it, but who actually said, you know, just finished the Queen's Gambit. It was awesome. Like, was it really fiction? Kind of a question mark. Mm-hmm. And we responded and kind of said, you know, the the storyline itself is, you know, the story itself is fictional, but in spirit and in terms of the references, it's actually very factual, yeah. right? And, and the Pal Benko, 
um, you know, thing you just looked up, even though it's not actually mentioned on the show, I would say that we already know that in these shows, they're doing constant references to not just real games, but the great legends of chess players. And so um, they did a great job. Again, the fact that they would even say that Beth goes to Vegas in 1966, mm -hmm. where we know there was an event there, one by Palbenko. That's pretty good stuff. I agree. Yeah. And it was fascinating. Now, I was trying to look up this hotel that they went to, the, the Mariposa Hotel. I couldn't find any really references to Las Vegas in this era. So I think they were, you know, without having to buy licenses. To, yeah, I, I was just going to say that. That's my assumption. Um, but it is yeah. a beautiful representation. And Towns is back, Danny. Towns yeah. is back in our Towns, life. Our guy. We love Towns, right? And he uh, he's obviously been hearing a lot more about Beth Harmon, right? Who's 18. And, uh, Who's 18 now. Yep. And uh, and he's a creeper yeah. now. Towns is officially a creeper in this episode. Danny, yes, I called bit. it. Yeah. A I little mean, bit. Yeah. Go for it. Anyways, I don't know. I, I love that Towns is back in our lives. I love Towns. And I know that there's this instant attraction there. But could he have been any more creepy, luring her back to his room? Well, especially because of, let's see, can I talk about all this or later episodes? It's a little more confirmed, especially because of Towns' partner who is also in the room. Roger. Oh, I love the interruption by Roger. And I have written down right. friend or lover. I don't right, know. exactly. I called it, I called him partner. I think that that's what makes Towns a little more creepy and a little bit more. I think the whole era is sort of like suggestive of, well, I, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of a weird thing to talk about. Like, first of all, she's 18, right? So she's obviously coming into her own as a woman and thinking about, you know, men romantically as she clearly has an infatuation with Towns, right? That's all okay mm -hmm. to say, right? And then the fact that he invites her back to her room, I think initially could be like, all right, well, you know, maybe that's okay and that they're there to work on chess. But the interaction that goes down in the room definitely, you know, suggests that even Towns might be thinking of more than a chess photography relationship with her. And then all of a sudden here comes Roger. And, you know, as we'll get into in later episodes, I think it was sort of like they were really clearly trying to imply oh, Towns is not who we thought he was, which then you're right. If then, if that's the case, then in hindsight, you look at all of Towns' behavior and go, yo, bro, what's wrong with you? Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. That's yeah, very so. true. But I will- <laughs> so I, I don't know how else to say that. I will say though, I do love Roger's outfits. I love what he comes in oh, on. Yeah. I love his yeah. swimsuit. Yeah. Roger on point. I love everything about Roger so far. <laughs> Roger. <laughs> Roger, yeah, you're my uh, best friend. Roger's not um, a character that comes back again, so I can just say that. Anyway, go ahead. Okay. Roger. Um, so then we get into this really interesting scene where she's describing the games. Um, so she, it goes right into, right? She says she beat someone from Oklahoma, then San Francisco. She said she played the Marshall. I don't know what that means. Yeah. Um, so the, uh, by the way, Queen, Marshall, the a Morphe. Reference. She, a direct reference to the person I just mentioned earlier, Frank Marshall at one point was um, the best player in the U S and one of the best players in the world. Um, oh. But uh, like I said, not dominant or good enough that we could say that Frank Marshall was a justifiable reference by Mike or Matt to say that the U S at some point was a perennial powerhouse. It really wasn't the case, but Frank Marshall, it was a real chess player. And the Marshall um, is a, a system in the Rui Lopez and exactly the kind of thing that Beth Harmon would be playing. I see. Gotcha. So that's really cool. Actually, that that little that little throwback, not only to Morphe, but to Marshall there. And then we see Benny and he says a very interested line that maybe you could break down for me, which is he says Queen's Gamut decline is so well respected. So 
I think it, on the one hand, it's a little bit of just dialogue to like the overall name of the show. Like maybe they're just trying to keep people on the edge of their seat about what is it about Benny in regards to the future of the show. I, I really took it as that. Like they're like, uh, Benny is saying the Queen's Gambit declined is so well respected. Like they're trying to just make sure Benny is seen as what is he kind of like the person who Beth wants to be. I see. He's like the best. Right. And the Queen's Gambit decline is a good and well-respected system by Black. And it's sort of implying that it's a more positional, advanced kind of approach. It's more of a Soviet approach because the other option is the Queen's Gambit accepted, which is a much sharper system. It's a much more kind of just complicated sort of uh, tactical mess. And what I take is what they're implying is accepting the Queen's Gambit is what somebody might do when they're first introduced to the Queen's Gambit declining the queen's gambit is like shows you know your stuff because you understand that taking the pawn in the queen's gambit is actually probably not the best thing for black to do so that's but i think all that dialogue is i'm kind of reading into it a little bit as a chess entertainer not just chess player to say that to me what they're clearly trying to do is just consistently set up that what benny says is like almost it's like she's she wants to be as good as benny Right. Mm. And everything he says is slightly kind of like, I know better than you and you all and we both know it. And you also wish you were as good as me and you're not there yet. Kind of thing. Got it. Yeah. And, you know, we we hear her describing Benny to her, I think to her mom at this point. And this is the reference to the Times article. Are you ready for this? She goes, I heard that he um, beat Nydorf in Copenhagen at 1948, which means Benny was eight. Yeah, that's unrealistic. And but see, <laughs> but see, if she heard that and Benny was eight, she told the Times article that she was eight when she started pl- learning, right? Ah. And some weird. That's the only thing I can think of. Like, yeah, that, no, I think you're right. I think that that's more likely than them making an age mistake. Anyway, I think it's all subtly suggestive of Ben Harmon wants to be a chess legend and. She's not totally an honest person. I mean, we already know that from, you know, the secretly developing substance abuse problem that she has to the little green pills, let alone what's to come. Right. And that's okay, Right. She's been through a lot of trauma and she's a she's a flawed human being is the best way to say it rather than not dishonest. But she clearly is flawed and she wants to be a chess star and -hmm. she wants to be Benny Watts. That makes total sense. It makes sense. Good good catch, by the way. Yeah, it was really weird to me. And I just got it while we were talking about on the podcast and I wrote it down. I'm like, oh, those two eights match up. But it's funny because she says that, you know, Benny doesn't scare her, but Borgov does, who we actually saw in a chess review article when they're in Houston. We skipped over it a little bit. It was very short. Right. Um, is Borgov as a real person, I assume? From- no. No, it's not. Okay. No. Okay. And, and, and um, <laughs> well, I, I feel like I mentioned this a little bit in our first podcast breakdown. Borgov is exactly the kind of character that is perfect for the show because he's a fictional character. But he clearly depicts who I would argue is Boris Spassky. Vasily Borgov, okay, the name is similar. I'm sure there's literally someone named Vasily <laughs> Borgov. Um, yeah. But Vasily Borgov is not a world chess champion, nor was he a strong chess player of any of these eras that we've discussed so far. So mm. I, I think he's just meant to depict, you know, and as we're going to learn as he becomes more a part of the show, just the legendary, untouchable figure of Soviet chess and that gotcha. period. Okay. Um, but no, I, I believe people have said he's pretty much seems mostly based on Boris Spassky and in, in regards to the guy that was the man to beat. But you could argue, 
you know, at the time, like, is he a combination of all of these Russian legends into one? I think that's, I think that's a very plausible theory. You're talking, you know, you're talking Mikhail Botvinnik, you're talking Boris Bosky, you're talking Vasily Smyslov, uh, who, uh, you're talking, you know, Bronstein, everybody. So he's just meant to depict like the best of the best. And that's who the Russians were. The Soviets were at the time. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes sense. It's, it's fascinating because that, you know, often they're blending reality, right? They're exactly. talking about real players and they're talking about these fictional players. So it's, it's a good line to, to follow, especially if you're just watching it like we are here. I'll tell you my other favorite part of this episode. It's, it's the little things that really may enjoy, you know, really bring a smile to my face. So, you know, like I said, the first one was when she goes high on Beth Harmon and the guys go shit, you know, and you just, uh, just get destroyed. Right. My favorite is this Benny awkward moment where he's talking to this gentleman um, over coffee or something. And Benny goes, uh, QG, QG, QGD over the Slav, right? And he's like, and that's it. So he says this and the guy's like, uh-huh. And then just walks away. Uh-huh. Like, like just, I don't know. It's like Benny at this point, there's this full of himself mentality. We've seen him just analyze the chessboard, kind of be this sort of know-it-all. I mean, he is an international master, you know, just like right. you, a little know-it-all, no one ever. Yeah, you know. Um, you know, just a little, little full of yourself. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah. um, you <laughs> no, know, okay. he has a lot of knowledge, but I feel like sometimes when there are individuals or you have a lot of knowledge or you're at this top of your class, sometimes your your brain and the topics that you're talking about are at a different level. And Benny here is this awkward moment where he's trying to explain something, this QGD versus the Slav, which is right. um, a chest opening, the, the Slav defense. I'm looking at the chess.com forums. I don't quite under, know anything about that. But, and then uh, obviously Benny's feeling good about himself, but this guy has no idea what he's talking about. He just kind of walks right. away. Right. So the the Slav is actually like a, a type of QGD, which is Queen's Gambit declined. So that also plays into what um, Benny was saying earlier that, you know, meaning the queen's gambit declined is the way to go right um so the slob is a the slob defense is really it's almost just a move order transition from the queen's gambit um when you when you decline the queen's gambit traditionally you do it with your king pawn the move is pawn to e6 if we're using algebraic or for black it would be pawn to king three uh back in this day um the slob is pawn to queen's bishop three uh or or pawn to c6 if you're black and so anyway it's just on it the only thing to take out of it is like you said, it's a great scene that kind of like you already accurately described. So I won't right? Benny, how he's perceived the other guy being like, uh, huh. Right. And also it's very good chess terminology. Cause you know, it's a hundred percent accurate. I love yeah, it. And, and now, Nailed I know, it. Q, now I know QGD is like, yeah, you know, the, oh, the slob defense is, is a type of, is, is a way to decline the queen's gambit. Got it. That's cool. I mean, and I, and I like how this is all, you know, building up on top of each other. Yep. And, and then we get to, you know, Benny V Harmon. I mean, this is cool. In, in our, in our show notes, we have at least the opening. I have it about how many moves in 10 moves in here. I have Yeah. Uh, for the opening it right now. Yeah. It's Good a stuff. Sicilian defense, um, which moves into all sorts of fun stuff. There's a Nidorf in there. There's a Schlevengen. There's a Sovin. Scheveningen. Scheveningen. Doing great. A Sovin. Yep. A flank variation. <laughs> There's all sorts of good stuff going on. I yep. love when I was watching this too, because I believe the opening was um, up to move nine was Lars Hogg versus Christo Alexiades in the at least in the chess analyzer. Like it was up to move nine. Like a real all the plays were from that match. Well, you can um, search games on chess.com to see 
to see master games like you're like you're referencing and and um in fact even up to bishop e7 we still actually had it was whitman versus il il nid il il shitch sorry um and uh anyway but yeah this is just good stuff and again we already know that beth is a sicilian you know she's a sharp sharp player she's an aggressive player she wants to play sicilians for both sides you know she's uh she's um again very very developed on the character of bobby fisher in regards to the opening repertoire um but yeah the knight orphan is defined as the move 5a6 for those following uh james's link the move 5a6 is officially a knight orf bishop to c4 is the so they actually, our opening calls it the Lipnitsky attack, but it's actually a Sozin. When you play Bishop C4, you're kind of officially in a Sozin. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we go back to calling it a Sozin the moment Black plays E6, which is a Shevaningen structure. Um, if Black had played something like E5, for example, instead of E6, it would have stayed in the Lipnitsky attack. You can test that yourself on the Lincoln opening score. Um, but really, I would argue that E6 is kind of the only way that top players would play against Bishop C4. So you're in a Shevaningen, Sozin attack, and the rest is uh, is Benny Watts and Beth Horman history. So. It, tr- it truly is. There's a lot going on in this in this endgame here that really is fascinating her. She, she attempts to, you know, I think what she's looking for uh, specifically is uh, the last move here is where it really confounds her. She, she takes... Um, um, Benny's knight uh, over here with her bishop, and what confounds her is that Benny takes it with his G seven. Yeah, the pawn. pawn. Now, why? What happened here? Like, why did this throw the entire match into this tizzy at this point? Um, yeah, it's funny because she talks about that later, right? Um, the um, so. Both are playable. G takes F6 is a, uh, God, it's so funny. God, this is taking me back. I love the way you're framing these questions, James, is making me think about these positions in ways that I haven't in a really long time. Good. And I mean that in the best way, because like, we're just like, I'm not talking chess with another international master. Here I am sounding like Benny Watts. I'm not trying to throw shade. What I'm saying is you ask questions in a great way. Cause you're like, yeah, like what's the fundamental critical part of this position? Because at a high level, I could say this is a very standard position. Like G takes up six is not that big of a deal because if we're looking at the position at the end of James's link, everyone, even though Black has the double pawns on F6 and F7, mm-hmm. Black has compensation for it because of the bishop pair, which is take a look at the bishops on E7 and D7. Yeah. That dark square bishop in particular kind of eventually has no rival, meaning white, in order to, to make the double pawns, took on F6 with the bishop parting ways with Beth parted ways with the dark square bishop. So what black has is like this long-term kind of compensation of the dark square bishop. It's not an aggressive approach from Benny. It's a very positional one. And these double pawns are very standard in, in a knight or Sicilian structure. They're actually very useful in some ways. They, they protect a lot of squares. They protect the King. And obviously, you know, we're breaking down an episode that's called you know, double, double pawns. pawns. Right. And, um, before we get into what the other maybe symbolic, you know, features of that reference might have been, this game here and the fact that she lost to Benny Watts specifically because of the move, G takes F6, which created the doubled F pawns, is the is the chess, you know, the chess depiction to the to the episode title. It's it's this decision that was sort of 
beyond her chess knowledge at the time that he would willingly create what is considered a positional weakness to F pawns on the same file hmm. um, in order to slowly outplay her, which is like he gets the G file for his rook, which opens up. He eventually had the dark sword bishop advantage. So again, just as I keep saying, they nailed it. It's brilliant in terms of it's the episode title directly relating to what happened on the board that was beyond her chess knowledge and where Benny Watts proved to still be the better player at this time in their careers and just, freaking awesome they nailed it and um, my favorite kind of end here too is mr scheibel shows up again and he goes you resign now right at the, at the yeah, end yeah. of this game because yeah. she's been outplayed she hasn't been mated yet but she knows it's over at this point and right. she even sort of admits here that she was out for a win benny had had one draw previously which right. means that she only needed to draw to win, to win because she was undefeated at this point. So she could have just drawn, played it out, and she would have won. Um, so really, at this point, it's either you go all in and try to crush it, right? You don't even need to crush it. The only reason to crush it is to show off, really, you know, um, in an extra way. I mean, it's great if you win, but she doesn't have to. The only thing that's bad is if she loses and now she's co-champions, which um, apparently, according to her mom, happens all the time, which we'll double fact check that on uh, Danny, but I imagine it does. But that she even says she sort of got caught up in trying to destroy him. Right. No, 100%. And, and that happens. I, I think you you nailed every aspect of it. I hardly need to add any chess context. Yeah, I mean, co-champions do, does happen all the time. In fact, it's actually more common at the high levels of chess that you have a tie for first in an open event like this, the U.S. Open, than it would be that someone wins it clear. It's mm. actually so a great reference by the mom and very accurate from the writers of the show. 100% realistic that you would get a, a, a tie. And again, very realistic to you know reference Beth Harmon's sort of chess weaknesses, chess characteristics that she wanted more than just she could have just gone for the draw, but she didn't, right? She wanted more. She wanted more. I do love, by the way, in this tournament where Benny and her are playing, there's this, it's not a digital board, but there's this, you know, board lit up on the back um, showing all of their moves. And I'm pretty sure they do this in real life where it's like a, not everyone can be crowded around the board. So it's almost like you're playing bingo, right? It's like the bingo mm-hmm. board, but it's a chess board. And right. I loved it because it, it didn't look digital. It looked like someone was moving the pieces alongside of it. It was really cool. I just thought it was really neat um, of the era aesthetics of being in Vegas um, type of casino-esque what it would look like to play chess in a casino at an odd way. I loved it. Which is great. And for the entertainment of the show, it's like Vegas being Vegas and chess being in Vegas. I can tell you no chess organizers would ever make a demo board look that sexy. So just (laughs) that part of it was pure Hollywood. I loved it. I have never seen a demo board that looks as good as that and will never see a demo board that looks that good in a chess room. Prove me wrong. The next time you want to organize the National Open, Al Losoff. That's right, Al Losoff. I'm talking to you, the National Open. Let's make a demo board that looks like that. Ready? Sorry, moving on. That'd be cool. I would love it. So double pawns, we now know the meaning behind it. It actually leads to her leads to her de- demise um, in this one. And is there any sort of... We, we do think openings and exchanges had some reference to, mm-hmm. to her and, and to this. Do we think double pawns has any like life, you know, Beth Harmon? takeaways here what i took out of it and maybe again i'm just you know 
at this point, I'm, now I'm just a human, not a chess player, right? I, I explained exactly what double pawns references in regards to the X's and O's. It is Benny Watts' doubled F pawns and that critical G takes F6 decision that she talks about with her mother and, and goes over it. I thought double pawns was kind of referencing how I feel like a pawn is like you're kind of in the beginning of the game, sort of learning the ropes. People, some people would say like you're a pawn in like the bigger game of things, right? And I felt like there were just moments in the episode where like both her and her mother kind of like were kind of like learning things about the chess world and things that were going on, which kind of made them feel like a couple of pawns, mm. right? Not necessarily doubled. The doubled F pawns is a direct chess term, but a couple of pawns in this bigger game that's going on in the chess world. Maybe that's how they felt at times. And so that was the reference or note I made of it. Um, it could just be Mike and Matt. There are a couple of double pawns, huh? <laughs> if you know what I'm talking about. Um, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, you know. Maybe you and I are a couple of double pawns. Roger and Towns, double pawns. Who knows? There you go. Double pawns. Okay. We do see more pairs, right? Where we see, right. we, we, and we see the outlier here. Who's the non-double pawn? Benny. Benny. Solo. Benny. The Benster. But he, then he plays the double pawn. So there's the, you know, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if there's any other Although connection. Although you and I would be remiss to be a couple double pawns if we also don't read the comment that came in. Why don't you go ahead and read the email we got? Because I just remembered that and we can't end the episode without giving credit where credit's due. It's very true. You know, every single episode that we've been going through, we have these listed on both Danny's YouTube, of course, on your favorite podcast player, but also at blunders.fm. You can leave comments on a specific episode. You can leave it on his YouTube. You can email us. There's an email contact button on blunders.fm. We love what did you love about the episode? Were there anything that we missed in the episode? You want us to go in deeper? And uh, David Morrison here, he reaches out to us and he said, thanks for making this podcast. I'm going to paraphrase here. This is the best podcast I've ever listened to in my life. End paraphrase. Um, but I can't believe you haven't mentioned the novel by Walter Tevis on which the show is based. Danny, why did you forget this important fact? A hundred percent right. I was just going to blame you for that. Um, the... Uh... So yeah, The Queen's Gambit by Walter Tevis. Um, if you look at the breakdown I did of this Queen's Gambit series on Netflix when it first came out, it's with Jen Shahadi over at the Chess.com YouTube channel, which is YouTube slash Chess. Maybe we'll try to have a link that directly goes to that video. You will note that I started off that particular breakdown, our quick sort of synopsis of how much we like The Queen's Gambit, with a shout out and acknowledgement of the Walter Tevis novel, not novel for the record. Just want to say that. So it's not that I didn't know. And, and you're right. I think James and I just got right into the, you know, the entertainment and you know, you know what it was We're we've been swept up in the moment. So forgive us. We've just been swept up in the moment, breaking down the chess, breaking down Netflix. But of course um, it is a, it is based on the novel Walter Tevis. And I'm going to say something that I bet you don't know is coming out of my mouth here in a second, James. We have been hearing rumors of a potential season two. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. Now, it's so loose yet. I don't even only people who listen to this podcast will will get that. So hopefully you you made all the way to the end for that little knowledge nugget. But if if rumors we're hearing are true, I wonder if by the time our breakdown of the Queen's Gambit and all all seven slash eight of whatever these podcast episodes we're going to do, I wonder if we'll hear anything more official. That'd be amazing. I'm always waiting for that nail Netflix things to say it's official. The next season is coming or been confirmed. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. Now I, I will say this. Um, I also did know that it was based on a novel. I read the Wikipedia page. Thank you very much. But I don't like to read. So I will never read this novel. I'm more of a visual learner. Um, I know how to read. I like to point that out. I know how to read. Um, but I don't 
necessarily enjoy reading <laughs> in, in novels. I books. feel like if I just continue to give you rope here, just how far will you go with yours? I don't know where you're going. Like, I, I know how to read. But I, 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 I know how I, I was, don't go to the school for kids who don't read good with Derek Zoolander. Anyway, go ahead. I, I will say this. I was the Microsoft. We have all these uh, different um, events like in-house where they bring in guest speakers all the time. And they brought in Matthew McConaughey um, to do what? a talk. You saw Matthew McConaughey in a talk? <laughs> I mean, virtually. Oh, oh yeah. Man. I, I, if on campus, you could actually go and see them in person, but you know, global pandemic. So, right. Um, so one of our, um, my fellow coworkers gets to interview Matthew McConaughey and they were talking about green lights, his new book. And a lot of just, you, when you get Matthew McConaughey talking about anything, which would be fantastic to talk about chess, by the way, um, even if he doesn't enjoy chess, just having Matthew McConaughey talk about anything is relatively fantastic. Right. Um, so I got caught up and I was like, wow, this, like this book sounds fantastic about his journey. And he wrote it. It's him. He didn't want to ghostwrite or anything like that. So I immediately went on Amazon, bought the book, and Heather is like, why did you, you know you're not going to read it. I was like, yeah, but it's going to look really nice behind me on every single podcast I and, and, and live stream I do. Oh, Someone's yeah. going to be like, ooh, that guy, intellectual over there. Yeah, no, I love it. I mean, sometimes people do buy, you know, there's actually, you and I could now just start a whole podcast, which would be more traditional to our other Blunders podcast. This brings up so much for me, man. Like we're like, we've been talking about the psychology of why people buy things like, like books. Cause what you're buying is you're buying motivation. You're buying like self motivation of like, you will, you will want to do this. Like the reason people buy chess opening books is they're buying two things, the potential of improving and motivation to do it because they think if I do this, I'll do it. Right. Yeah. And it's really, there's all kinds of psychology about that. But anyway, um, I want to read one other comment because it was the only one of relevance that came into our YouTube uh, version of episode two, which from our boy, Julian Andrews, um, who, who said, or, or girl, Julian Andrews, actually, Julian is a name I don't necessarily know off the top of my head. So Julian Andrews, um, guy or gal. Uh, he, I just love the end of his comment. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but uh, the comment says, also on the subject of the librarian, in my experience, librarians know some random things about a wide variety of topics. So it could be that she knew that GMs were a thing and that Capablanca was one great chess player uh, so that therefore she just sort of assumed he must have been a GM. That, that kind of checks out because remember, when Beth Harmon's talking to the library, it is after the year of 1950 where I said FIDE started awarding official international titles, right? Mm -hmm, so it mm -hmm. was after the year 1950. And she would know of Capablanca because he was a world champion. So it's possible she just said it that way and that it wasn't actually a mistake, as I pointed out. So anyway, just wanted to give credit where credit was due. I guess the timeline checks out for that to check out with the writing. So Very cool. And I will talk about one last thing in pop culture here is um, Heather and I were big fans of the, the Bachelor Nation, Bachelor, Bachelorette going on right now. Um, I listened to a podcast on the Ringer Network called Bachelor Party with Juliet Littman. Big fan. I've never met her, but that'd be cool because... She talks a lot about Bachelor and Bachelorette and has guests on on this week's Bachelorette um, Bachelor Party podcast. They were talking about how one of the contestants um, is is a chess player, actually uh -huh. plays chess. They think it's one of the most sexy games. Like they're like, not only is it intelligent, but he's a gamer. It's like, and it's chess, right? It's the sexiest board. They called it chess, the sexiest board game out there alive. I just want to point oh that out. That's just so freaking funny. This is totally the Queen's Gambit on Netflix, Beth Harmon effect. I just, yeah. that is, that was something that never would have been said except for in total jest and mockery of chess, of chess nerds. So that's awesome. Love yeah. it. I'm going to go find it. And in fact, what I think would be really fun is, um, 
is to attempt to, to get one of those people like on on chess.com playing some games at like seriously no i need that clip and we're gonna tweet it at them and we're gonna try to get them involved you know um for sure that is awesome yeah all right well that is gonna do it for this week's coffee house blunders like i said earlier go to blunders.fm you can hit that contact button you can click on danny's youtube which we'll put in the show notes of course or you're listening on youtube and go to blunders.fm all the moves are there all the contact information there you know give it a thumbs up a like subscribe do all the things really appreciate it but until next week this is going to be your coffee house blunders and oh my goodness i am so excited for episode four danny can't wait episode four middle game we're in the middle game now batman i don't know why i said it that way but uh yeah middle game coming up next all right bye <laughs>